Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, Duke professor Laurent Dubois talks about his new book, The Language of the Game, How to Understand Soccer. Laurent is one of the truly curious minds in American soccer culture, and that comes out when he talks about his book. Well, what I wanted to do was to write something that would both be a good introduction for people who are curious to know about soccer, but also be a book that people who are already already quite into soccer could learn something from. And it's really an introduction to the kind of history and the tactics, and but also importantly to the, the various cultures of the game all around the world. All that and more coming up. Our guest today is one of my favorite people in soccer. Laurent Dubois is a professor of Romance Studies and History at Duke University, where he teaches the popular class Soccer Politics. His books include Haiti, The Aftershocks of History, The Banjo, America's African Instrument, and the sports books Soccer Empire, The World Cup, and The Future of France, and his newly released book, The Language of the Game, How to Understand Soccer. Laurent has organized a one-day symposium at Duke on April 6th, called The Struggle for Equality in Women's Soccer, which I am looking forward to being a part of. That is open to the public. Laurent, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me on your show. So much to talk about here, but I want to start with your book, which I love. I read the whole thing and uh, was very happy to provide a blurb for it. It's out uh, very recently this week, uh, and it's called The Language of the Game, How to Understand Soccer. Uh, Could you explain to our listeners what your goal was with this book. Well, what I wanted to do was to write something that would both be a good introduction for people who are curious to know about soccer, but also be a book that people who are already already quite into soccer could learn something from. And it's really an introduction to the kind of history and the tactics, and but also importantly to the, the various cultures of the game all around the world. So the book is organized um, first around, it's essentially organized around the kind of player's the players in the broader drama that is soccer. So the players on the field, the referee, the manager, and of course the fans themselves um, each get a chapter. Um, and so the the point is to kind of use different stories um, of different players and, and different moments in the history of sport, really to provide people with a kind of way to, to think about and experience it, um, you know, from, from multiple levels. That's So that was really, that. that's the goal overall. Um, and it's been a, and been a really fun thing to work on and to, to talk to people about. Well, you have this sort of, framework that you were talking about for the book where you have chapters on the goalkeeper, the defender, the midfielder, the forward, the manager, the referee, and the fan. And that may make it seem kind of rigid, but it's obvious from reading this book that your influences are spanning an incredible amount of countries, uh, women's soccer, men's soccer, history, philosophers, and then also the game itself. And one thing I came away with was just how smoothly you interwove all of this stuff. How do you approach such a a sprawling book? I mean, it was definitely a challenge to find, you know, what stories. And of course, for every story I tell, I, there are others that one could have told, you know, so it's always right. a tough decision about um, who you're going to focus in on. And um, but I guess I found I drew together just things that because I teach I teach the course, I read a lot about soccer, of course, follow a lot. These were the stories that in many different ways it kind of moved me or struck me um, the most, perhaps. And 
in each case, I thought, well, with the positions, I just sort of thought, okay, well, I want to talk about people who've played in this position, but also how it's come to be the way it is, but also the kind of philosophy or the the kind of experience of those positions. So the goalkeeper in particular, I think, has a unique role in, in soccer. And I talk about, you know, Albert Camus, who is a existentialist philosopher who kind of was a goalie and Nabokov and these sorts of figures, a way in which um, different cultural figures and writers, kind of their their experience in the game actually shaped who they were. Because I wanted to really kind of talk about the interface between soccer and society, and soccer and politics, and and all these different spaces. So many of the people I picked, I, I guess, embodied that in one way or another. Whether it's Maradona or Drogba or um, various histories of of women's soccer, which I, I really wanted to have infuse the whole book, and it's taken up really in in every chapter as well as part of the story. How did you go about doing your research for the book? Well, a huge amount of it is just really just having read as widely as I could um, the the work. You know, there's lots of incredible writing on soccer. I mean, I found new books. There were some that I was familiar with. Again, I've um, when you're teaching a class, I'm kind of constantly, I basically kind of have developed this whole archive that includes uh, not just readings, but videos and journalistic articles and basically this big sort of set of materials that I use um, to, to prepare my lectures and to share with students as well. Um, and then the class itself has this the, a blog called Soccer Politics that students uh, write on. And so there's this whole kind of body of material that I'd been kind of working with for a while um, that I'd sort of tapped into. The challenge, of course, was to figure out a way to to tell a story that made sense and to bring in all these features in a, in a way that I hope you know readers will find compelling. How do you balance writing for the hardcore soccer fan with writing for a general audience? I always find that's one of the biggest challenges when I'm writing a soccer story for Sports Illustrated magazine, say. Yeah. Yeah, I think it really is a challenge. And in this case, I mean, I definitely, I guess the point is then that, that, and again, in teaching and writing, I think, you know, no matter how much we know about soccer, there's always more we can know about it, right? It's such a vast and changing and shifting terrain. So in some ways, what I wanted to do was, was something where, and also hopefully sort of angle, you know, anyone's angle on the particular question will be a little different. So even if it's something people have thought about, maybe it's a slightly different angle. Um, but I definitely also, I mean, my, I really wanted to write a book where if somebody um, wasn't familiar with soccer at all, you know, has ha, even maybe doesn't like soccer or hasn't been a fan, but for whatever reason is curious that, you know, the book is dedicated to, to those who love soccer and to those who don't, but love someone who does. So <laughs> part of the, part of the idea is, you know, for all those parents whose kids play soccer, or who's got a partner or something or a family member who's always talking on and on about soccer, you know, this would be a way in um, and kind of an invitation to the game. And again, I, I really wanted to focus on the kind of the pleasures and the joys of the game and what it kind of brings people. Um, you know, it, it, there's parts of it that are obviously a critique of all the things that we can we can talk about. But a lot of it was, it, I mean, I describe it as kind of a love letter to the sport and just the things that it, it gives people. Um, and that was that was a, one of my goals was just to kind of share that with with readers. I was going to bring that up because it's easy to get cynical about modern sports, including soccer. And yet in your writing, and this is very clear in your book, you find a way to maintain a sense of wonder about the sport. Mm -hmm. And I really get the sense from reading it that that's, you're not, that's not a put on that is, that is how you really still feel about the sport. And I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, and I think that I mean, you know, and I'm very aware, and in in other works and teaching, we're very aware of all the kinds of issues with the sport. Um, and I think, but part of it is precisely to me that's that's wondrous about it is how 
um, these kind of moments of beauty and, and communion still come through, right? Even even despite all that, right? And I think that's why so many people keep coming back to it. I mean, soccer fans are well aware of the, the issues that surround the game and the problems of the institutions and and so forth. Um, but at the end, in the end, you know, there's there's something that draws people back, and I wanted to kind of articulate that. I don't think the you know the institutions are are always going to be problematic. I think, but the power of this game and the ability it's had to to transit across so many different cultures, to be so meaningful in so many places, to me is is kind of wondrous. I mean, it's sort of like it is the most widely shared language on the planet. It has this kind of capacity to keep generating stories over and over again. Um, so just, you know, in the face of that, I just think that I wanted to, to kind of deal with it in some ways and try to articulate what, from my perspective and how and why that, that might be the case. Um, and again, it's, it means to be a very welcoming book. I mean, I think there are, you know, obviously different ways of being a fan and approaching the game, but the idea is, you know, kind of soccer can be anyone's right. And people can make of it what they want. So this is in a sense of a, an invitation to the different ways to, to approach it as well. I mean, the title of the book is the language of the game. And, and I know you and I both love language and the study of it. And soccer, because it's so global, has so many different types of language used. And I mean, personally, my head explodes when mm -hmm. people try to tell me that I'm supposed to use a certain term. I feel like <laughs> right. yeah. we all love the same sport. I don't care what words you use yeah. Yeah. to describe it. Um, how do you view the, the language of the game and what it reveals and how we how we approach it, how we talk about the language of soccer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it was even just a short part of the book where I talk about, you know, the origins of the term soccer, which is, you know, one of those things that people argue about <laughs> using, as you know. Um, and, uh, you know, the fact that this was actually long used in England, basically into the 1960s and is something that kind of emerges from the English context, I think is, is less, is little known, but there's, I think for me, I mean, the term language, of course, is, I liked it because it's kind of capacious. It has a, you know, it can mean a lot of different things. Um, mm -hmm. But it has something to do with the fact that this is soccer is very interesting in that it's a very specific structure. I mean, it's kind of a strange construct, right? You know, you can't use your hands. You know, there's there's all these rules around it that right. are, can be kind of mystifying. You know, the offside rule, which I try to explain and kind of give a history. <laughs> of. But these are things that are, despite that. So there's there really is a kind of grammar, you know, a kind of shared language that. Again, you can go into almost any place in the world and have that be a common thread that you, you might not be able to speak a single word of the language other people speak. But there's a very good chance that anywhere you are, you'll be able to find, you know, a soccer game. And that if you play it, you'll be kind of playing the same game. You'll, you'll sort of, there might be some differences, but you'll broadly understand one another. And at the same time, of course, it's, it's spoken with all these different accents and people can infuse into the game all kinds of things, right? So people in Senegal or in, Af you know, in West Africa play the game in a way that they think of as being very much their way. You know, it's a way that's mm -hmm. not, not the English way. It's the way that they kind of decided and developed to play. So I think like language too, you know, it gives you a broad grammar, but you can say so many different things with it. Um, and that's, that I think is part of the power that, you know, soccer is, is, can, can speak all kinds of different things and all kinds of different meanings, depending on the context. What is your personal history of how you got connected to soccer? 
So, and I tell a little bit about this, the book, I mean, I was, uh, we moved from Belgium when I was a, a baby, really, to the United States. So I grew up in suburban Bethesda, um, where soccer was kind of expanding at that time in the 1970s. So soccer for me was like, you know, many, many other American kids, uh, a kind of just a youth pastime, but a, a pretty special one, you know, one where I kind of connected with kids, all some of whom were also of immigrant background, and just a kind of space where we connected in that space. And so that was basically for me the early experience was as as a as a youth player. I didn't play kind of high school or collegiate soccer. I continued to be to be interested in the game, um, but it really for me things crystallized in a different way. Starting in, well in 1998 when France won the World Cup as a as a scholar in my other area, I work on the history of French Empire and French colonialism and race and immigration. Um, and starting then, I really came to realize that soccer was this incredibly vital space in France where these histories that I was interested to were being kind of dealt with and, and confronted in all kinds of ways through figures like Zidane and Turam. Um, and so that became an interest of mine. And then in 2006, when I flew to Paris to be planning to be there to celebrate France winning the World Cup so I could celebrate as I hadn't been there in 1998, um, instead watched uh, Zidane's headbutt <sighs> and was forced basically to write an entire book to sort of deal with that whole incident. Um, so that, my, that this early book I wrote on soccer, um, Soccer Empire, is – Really that, I mean, it was de dealing with or thinking through the way that particular instant condensed, you know, not just the moment of France at the moment, but actually decades and, and in a way, a whole century of history that came together in that. And that was sort of my dive into writing about the sport and teaching about the sport. That same time when I wrote that is when I started teaching the soccer here, at, the soccer politics class here at Duke. Um, and so the second book has been the result of then over the last few years writing for magazines, you know, actually working, you know, we're working with you at the Sports Illustrated about, about the 2015 right. uh, Women's World Cup and just having opportunities to bring, uh, just find a voice and sort of write, write for, for different readers about soccer. And in some ways, this book, you know, pulls together those strands that I've been working on since then in different venues as well. Recently, we had Andy Markovitz from the University of Michigan on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And like you, he's a guy who is very accomplished in fields outside of soccer who has also written really well about soccer. Um, you know, I mean, your book on Haiti a couple of years ago, I remember seeing on the front page of the New York Times Sunday book review. I mean, this was, this was a very big deal. And uh, I wonder, you know, Markovitz talked on the podcast a little bit about how sometimes in the academic community he's faced some sneering about his soccer work mm -hmm. and obviously you're a professor at duke i mean this is a pretty good school uh what have you faced anything like that yourself there is some of that i mean i think it's an interesting domain because um you know scholars work on a lot of things on popular culture and lots of domains that are um that are, you know, kind of realms of that aren't sort of, let's say, you know, high culture, if you want to think of it that way. Um, and a lot of that's mostly accepted, you know, I've got great colleagues who work on hip hop and so forth. There is something around sport, I think that's complicated. And it's partly because of the institutions that professors live in, which is institutions of higher learning, that in the United States also have an incredible focus on sports. And sometimes a lot of professors feel like there's actually a conflict between, you know, the athletic mission of a university and the academic mission. Um, so I think that does sort of shape it. And in, in, there's, a, of course, that's all the more reason, I think, to bring sports into the classroom, um, to connect those. For, for students at Duke, 
uh, sports are a huge part of their life. The students who take my class, you know, I mean, they are many of them are these devoted soccer fans who are so into the game. You know, it's a massive part of who they are. Um, so in a way, it's great for them. I think it's nice to be able to use that and bring that into the classroom and make those connections. Um, in terms of writing about it, I mean, it is true that there is more and more writing about it, but it just remains still sort of a, a slightly on the edge academic field. I think what we're doing and, you know, many other scholars I can think of who are writing now are just showing how deeply, I mean, when there's something that's this fundamental to culture in the in the places we're studying, um, you know, whether you're interested in it as a fan or not, you just have to think of it as part of the social historical fabric. Um, so it's kind of, you know, I just feel like it's sort of like it'd be irresponsible to write about contemporary Europe and somehow not deal with the fact that soccer is this major vector of of society and culture, um, certainly true for Latin America or Africa as well. So, um, but it, yeah, I think it'll take time and it's certainly difficult for students to, for many cases, I think for a student to come get a PhD and decide that they're going to write about sports is sort of, it's, it's unusual actually. Yeah. I mean, your class at Duke soccer politics, I'm curious to know what sort of material do you get into for the class? What's on your reading list? So it's it's a it is a global class in terms of the reach, and we've um, this year, for instance, we've read um, David Winner's book, Brilliant Orange, about Dutch mm-hmm. soccer, which is a great classic. Um, Roger Kittleson's new book about Brazilian uh, Brazilian football, which I which I think is great. Um, a number of other texts as well. The class is is interesting in that I actually teach it in multiple languages. So there's a, a lecture in English on Tuesdays, but then there are sections in Spanish, French, Italian, and English. And each of those groups like do their conversation in the in the particular language, and also nice. they'll read, you know, so they'll read um, uh, works, novels in Spanish and French and Italian based on the group, and then they actually blog in those multiple languages too. Then they kind of come together and share that. So, um, so that's really great because it gives them a chance to sort of use their foreign language skills, but also ex- each of them kind of goes in different directions. And in the past, we've had also German and Portuguese sections too. So it gives them a sense of the the multiple languages of the game in that sense. Um, but I really want to try to get them to think carefully about soccer. So many of them bring an intense in, interest in soccer, but they haven't necessarily thought about it in the dimensions that we're going to do in the class. Um, you know, more critical dimensions or historical or aspects of the game they haven't considered. And really just the, the thinking and the intellectual aspects of the game. I mean, this is a game that's obviously played crucially with your body, but it's a very mental, intellectual game. Um, and so we you know, when we study the offside rule or things like that, we start really thinking about, well, how does this shape the architecture of space on the field and those kinds of questions. Nice. Um, you have this April 6th symposium uh, coming at Duke, the struggle for equality in women's soccer. Who's involved? Is it open to the public? How's it going to work? Um, yes, it's definitely open to the public. We welcome anyone who's in the area to come. Um, it's on Duke's campus at a place called the Forum for Scholars and Publics, uh, which I direct here. Um, people Google that or Google the name of the of the event. They'll, they should they'll be able to find uh, um, information about time and location. Um, and we've got two things. There's sort of Jeffrey Gerson, who's a scholar um, who's coming in, who's organized a panel basically focusing on women's soccer in the United States and the kind of issues around equality and, and equal pay that will feature Anson Dorrance, of course, the coach from UNC, Carla Overbeck, um, and then a, 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 an additional a, a, a agent from who's been involved with women's soccer. And then the second panel um, is uh, more kind of global focused. That's the one that you'll be moderating. Um, that's kind of a focus a little bit on the global questions about women, equality in women's soccer with Jean Williams, who's probably the leading scholar of women's soccer in the world coming in from England. 
um, Gwendolyn Oxenham, who's have written a wonderful new book um, about women's soccer, and then Sharid Ahmed, who's a who's a, a journalist who writes a lot about issues around Islam and, and women's soccer, and and support generally. So the two panels hopefully will give people a kind of larger view of the kind of global ways in which women's soccer is kind of I think in many ways at a crossroad. Um, a place where there's a lot of interesting, you know, struggle for for equal pay um, and larger questions uh, being being dealt with. Yeah, I really can't wait to be a part of that. Just excited to uh, be moderating a panel with some people that I've read uh, for a long time. But actually, I don't think I've met any of those folks in person yet. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it should be great. Um, I'm curious to know uh, the, the term soccer politics is. I'm pretty sure that's your Twitter handle, isn't it? It is, yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And it's the name of your class. And I was wanting to know how you felt whenever you heard some FIFA honcho or someone at that level in the IOC or whomever say politics in sports can't mix. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Does that drive you nuts? Like it drives me nuts. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a great refrain, and of course. One of the secrets to to how political soccer can be is that claiming that it's not political is part of its it's is is a key part of its politics, if that makes sense. <laughs> so often often people have used soccer for political ends, and then they've said, "Oh, well, this isn't really political. This is about soccer, right? This is not a." Um, and they can think of that. That's the case in in different different areas. I mean, I think it's so. Part of it's, you know, what people mean by politics, right? So in the academic context, when we talk about politics, we don't mean necessarily formal institutional electoral politics, you know, the Senate election or something. Um, we're talking quite quite broadly, I mean, politics having to do with like how people see themselves, what community they, see, they feel they're a part of, um, you know, how do they connect across different boundaries, the questions of migration and belonging in any given country. And it seems to me it would be insane to try to suggest that there's not a link between <laughs> soccer and politics. I mean, the World Cup is the kind of major, is this major stage through which national narratives are, it's the most, in a sense, the most serious, the most kind of powerful way in which we actually see nations kind of embodied in a particular group of player. And obviously, um, people channel all kinds of ideas about who they are as a nation into that. But so too with local identities and, and identifications. Um, I write in the book, you know, women's soccer is, I think, inherently political. Um, you really can't talk about women's soccer without dealing with broader questions about gender and politics in our society. And, and we see that all the time. So, um, I think, you know, the, and of course, FIFA itself is a very powerful political force in the world, you know, and, and they certainly wield that power as, as a political force as well. So, um, yeah, I think that's always a kind of disingenuous thing you, you'll hear. <laughs> I do understand that, you know, I understand that also that part of sport is that you get away from things. And, you know, it's I also I don't want to deny that it's totally fine right. to watch it. It's not like every game has to these things have to be brought into it. You can just watch the, you know, the, the Manchester Derby and just enjoy it. Right. So, but I think from a larger analyst perspective, you know, to kind of deny the connections would be, I think a little bit uh, blind. We've talked about uh, your book, soccer empire about uh, France and the impact of that team, that national team that it had. What did you learn in researching and writing that book? That was a huge learning experience for me because I started out thinking I was really going to write about basically 2006, 1998, you know, really the modern story of of French soccer. And then I just started realizing that this whole story about um, kind of race and migration in French soccer went so deep. It went back, took me back basically to, 
you know, the early 20th century to the whole history of French empire, a lot of stuff about Algeria, the books woven around Zidane and Turam as these two figures. But so Zidane brings us back to Algeria and Turam back to the history of soccer in the Caribbean. So to some extent, what just surprised me is how deep and, and complex and how in a way I felt like I sort of discovered that by I could take soccer and write a whole history of 20th century French empire through that. Um, and so in some ways, the idea of the book was that for those who were interested in soccer, but maybe didn't know those other things, they would learn about those other things and vice versa for people who did know something about French history and French empire. Um, they would discover the, the intertwining of soccer with it. Um, I also just discovered how fun it is to, to write about the sport there, you know, and how, how many ways and, you know, each soccer game is kind of its own story, you know, in a way. So the games themselves are these incredibly interesting things to, to try to narrate. And then, of course, soccer players' lives are um, are really fascinating. And, and so there's just so much pleasure in terms of writing about it, I think, as you know, of course, as a, as a great writer about the sport. Um, but that that was a discovery there as well. I've gotten to know Lilian Turam a little bit in recent years. Uh, we did an event together here in New York at NYU a couple years ago. Uh, he's obviously done a ton of work fighting racism in soccer, and I know you have gotten to know him pretty well. How has your relationship with Turam developed over the years? Mm-hmm. So I first met him, um, I believe it was, yeah, it was in 2006 when we, he's an incredibly, as you know, intellectual and very interesting person. He's curated exhibits in France. You know, he educates in schools. He's written a book about black history. Um, so that actually did a translation for into English. We're still looking for a publisher for that, but we, you know, he, um, and I met in the context of doing an interview for a, a very important a French magazine called Esprit, which is a kind of journal of ideas in, in France, which we wanted to interview him for. Um, and since then we've stayed in contact. Um, I brought him to Duke in 2009. I think it was one of his first trips to the States. Um, and then we just had this kind of extraordinary week where he taught us a lot of things, but also he was interested in learning about the history of slavery and black history in the United States. Um, and we've we've kept in touch since then and done done various things. Um, I'd love to bring him back to to Duke. When I tell the story of that visit, it's it's interesting because you know the students still they know people know who Lilian Turam is, and um, the idea that he was here excites them. But I remember so powerfully that when we had him here, um, I wasn't quite sure how people in North Carolina, you know, what they would know about Lilian Turam. But when he gave his talk at their our local at our museum on Duke's campus. You know, when we opened the door, there was like a rush of people kind of running in, you know, it was like one of the wow. seats. And in this and in he looked around and in this auditorium, there were people wearing the jerseys of every single team he'd ever played with in his life, starting with his youth team in Ben <laughs> Bleu. Like there were, you know, and they had they had got their jerseys and they'd come in and they were like, remember when you used to play, you know, it was amazing. Like, wow. so it was, for me, it was this kind of a uh, just reminder of the power of the, of the sport that again, this figure who's a, a massive icon in France, but um, you know, could have this reach and he's just an incredible person, you know, in terms of the way that he he's used, he has used his political voice or the, the voice, you know, the iconic status he has in France for, for political ends. And it's interesting because I remember when he was here in 09, you know, he commented on the fact that American athletes seem to him so comparatively apolitical. Um, and I've just been reflecting on that recently, how much that has changed now, um, you know, and how right. we have more and more folks here who who are like Lilian Turam in the sense that they see the the kind of platform of being an athlete as a, as a place from which to speak about other questions. You're a prolific book author, obviously. What sort of ideas in the soccer world are you interested in pursuing maybe for future books? 
Um, I have, I mean, I, I do find, and in this writing, this book continues with us, I, I, in general, I think this, the whole story of women's soccer, which people are really, I mean, we're really in some ways only beginning to fully discover, you know, Jean Williams, who will be here, has done a lot of work on that. But there's so much there in terms of the histories of, of, of women's soccer in Latin America or in Africa. So there's a lot there. I just think that's incredibly fascinating. And just all of the stories at the kind of grassroots levels of soccer that, you know, tend to get overlooked a little bit. Um, I also think that we're in the midst of so much change, and of course, you've written about this as well in, in your new book, but so much change in how soccer is experienced. Um, the, the, the FIFA video game, you know, social media, the kind of the virtual relationship to, to the sport, the money and the speculation in the sport, which is constantly, you know, setting new, new records. So I think there's a lot happening right now in soccer that, that really raises a lot of questions that are linked to broader questions about our contemporary world and how we experience it. Um, so, I, you know, that's something I'd love to maybe, I don't know if it'll be in book form, but those are questions I think are really interesting to delve into. Um, since I'm a Belgian and since the Belgian team is now, you know, really good again, um, there's a little part of me that wonders whether I might not have to write about uh, about something like Soccer Empire, but for the, the history of Belgian sport, or at least the contemporary, um, you know, depends on maybe they have to win a World Cup first for there to be a, um, but, I, but I have found the story of the Belgian team in relationship to, to Belgian society just personally really fascinating and something I'd like to write about as well. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, a story that I've really been drawn to as well. I've got, in my book coming out soon here, a chapter with Vincent Company uh, and and a chapter with Roberto Martinez, who obviously is not Belgian, but is coaching the Belgian team Mm -hmm. at the World Cup this summer and and who knows, could win it. The talent is certainly there. Um, But one thing that both of them talked about was how – Obviously, you have players on that team who speak different languages. You have um, uh, different types of playing styles. And the challenge is, I think, in many ways, similar to the French team that had been so successful to find a way to win uh, and and win trophies in, in a way that they haven't yet mm-hmm. um, to, to make it work. Because, I mean, the talent's there. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's, it is, you know, Belgium is a very fragmented place, two languages, different kind of a lot of tensions. Um, also a society, you know, really radically transformed by immigration. And um, all that you can really see embodied, obviously, on the team and the stories of the people on the team. Um, and I, I think that's really interesting as well. And there's a kind of way in which, um, you know, it just crystallizes a lot of the things that are so interesting about about the game. And I think um, it'll be interesting, but the, also that tactical question of you know what makes a, what makes it possible for for again you look at the roster and you're like okay this is an incredible team but you know does it gel does it does it do well and that's one of the amazing things about soccer right is that you just really can't predict at all um, and other teams you know Iceland being the, the kind of great <laughs> example but other teams that don't necessarily have that star power but just have a real cohesion and a kind of identity on the field you know can can do incredibly well um so that makes all the tournaments i think always really exciting i also think that in my experience with vincent company over the last few years uh and getting to know him a little bit there are some similarities with turab yeah, in yeah. leadership in a sense of what's important outside the game but also just being a world-class player and and leader on the field too 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's, you know, I would love to bring him to Duke, actually, I can imagine, <laughs> imagine that would be, but he, he's a very smart, you know, he's said really powerful things after the, par- after the Brussels terrorist attacks, and mm-hmm. I think has a similar story in some ways of coming from, you know, a certain kind of background and feeling like he needs to, to address that to some extent, or, or just sort of speak about that in his, in his interviews. And, um, but yeah, I mean, he's also like Turam, I mean, these, there's, you know, there's, again, defenders don't really get the same you know, adoration necessarily as other players, but they're so pivotal. And I think, you know, a, a great, a great defensive player is really a, a glory to behold, you know, and I try to actually, I write about Jerome in the book in that way too. And, um, you know, something just within the game, I think it's one of the places to look to really see, um, you know, how, how people, how people play at the highest levels. The new book is the language of the game, how to understand soccer. Laurent Dubois, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Laurent Dubois, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it wherever you get your podcast. It really does help us if you do. And check out the 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available on Amazon. Recent guests include Becky Sauerbrunn, Stuart Holden, Joshua Robinson, and John Sutcliffe. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.